Support for this podcast comes from you and Yankwich & Associates, since 1997 working to provide expert, responsive service in intellectual property law to biotech, biopharmaceutical, and biochemical companies worldwide. More information at yankwich.com. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I have this problem. When I go to a party or a dinner and I get introduced to people, they'll say, like, hi, I'm Sal, I'm Sarah, I'm Joe, I'm Claire. And I look at them, and I can't remember any of their names. And then inevitably, I'm sitting next to someone who's like, hi, Sal, hi, Sarah, hi, Joe, hi, Claire. And even after that, even after it's been repeated, I've still got nothing. Memory frequently fails us in these kinds of moments. But it's also good enough. And so most memories, you'll at least remember the gist of what happened. Julia Shaw is the author of The Memory Illusion and a senior lecturer in criminology at London South Bank University. So you'll remember sort of in general that you had a conversation with a person or you talked to someone about memory. Um, you might not remember the details. You might not remember that my name's Julia or that I wrote a book. But you might remember this sort of this general concept. Oh, yeah, I talked about false memories and misremembering. So apparently I shouldn't be concerned. It turns out I've got a lot of other stuff on my mind. I mean, we're so busy taking in what all the other things that are happening when we're meeting someone. I mean, we're, we're eyeing them up. We're trying to see, you know, is this person going to hurt me? Is this person someone I want to get to know? Is this someone I you know, really want to get to know? Um, so there's, there's lots going on in that moment. And it's really easy to not actually even just pay enough attention to the name to be able to put it into even your short-term memory. Shaw focuses on how our memory works. She's looked at what we can remember and what we can't remember. She's convinced research subjects of false memories. And she's investigated more generally why we often overestimate our memories. Shaw says we've got to rethink our reliance on something that is way too fallible. All of our memories change every time we recall a story. And so it's important to understand that sort of Memory is malleable, and people can say things with confidence and with detail and with emotion, even if those things never actually happened, because they feel real to the person recalling them. So how much do you think of the memories that you have about your own life are, are true? <laughs> like, how much do you think you <laughs> misremember the things that have actually happened to you? I like to say that 100% of our memories are essentially false. There's the essentially in there just as a little qualifier, at least. Um, what I mean is that no memory, even if you have a perfect memory, so you're, you're experiencing a situation right now, you're listening to a podcast or you're, you're watching something on TV, you close your eyes or you close your ears, if you will, and you try to remember exactly what you just heard. Right. Now, even in that circumstance, you're going to make mistakes. And that's as good as it's ever going to get. And so what I mean by sort of all our memories are false is that because of perception, because of attention, because of memory, because of how our brains work, you're never taking in all the details and you're almost certainly creatively interpreting both your environment and, and sort of filling in the blanks. You know, in the 2016 election, one of the things uh, that we've kind of seen happen this year is a kind of discussion about the past and how, it, you know, some eras of the past were, were really great and we want to try to, you know, recreate those eras now. When you, when you hear that kind of rhetoric talked about in the political sphere, does that also, do you think, 
fit in with this whole glorification of the past in our memories, just the way I might remember, like, boy, when I was 10, those were the days. (laughs) Back in the day. Right. Yeah. Well, I really hate nostalgia. Like, I I really don't like the (laughs) idea of sort of looking. (laughs) Puts you at odds with a lot of people. Well, but it's it's just it it's not useful and it's often incorrect um, and often it's riddled with false memories. I mean, if you look back at statistics and look at I don't know things like crime, life expectancy, basic things, and you can see that so many things have gotten so much better over time, and yet people look back on their usually it's their between the ages of fifteen and twenty five, which is mm-hmm. called the, the reminiscence bump, which is where people over the age of forty in particular seem to have an increased memory of events that happen at that time. And on top of that, generally remember it as more fondly than it, well, one might argue, may have actually transpired. Is that because they're like becoming adults and those things are like somehow very searing or they're the first time that certain things have happened to them, that kind of thing? Exactly, exactly. It's where you develop as you. So it's sort of your identity forming years. And they're remembered very fondly. And there's, I mean, in psychology in general, there's something called the primacy effect, which is that things that happen first, we often remember better than things that happened later. That's partly going on. But in terms of political decision making, the problem with sort of making a country great again, shall we say, or, or trying to say that we should make a country great again, is that... A, our country is great now, um, and so you're encouraging people to rely on potentially false memories, and that's going to have an impact on your political decision making because you're you're sort of reaching into your past, picking out favorites, and using that to make decisions now. Um, so I think that there's there are huge problems with nostalgia, and I mean it's seen all over the world. I mean Brexit was so, so in the UK the the Britain leaving the EU was also driven by by nostalgia hugely. Mm. Um, so False memories, nostalgia. I'd say a lot of nostalgia is riddled with false memories, and we need to be careful with hmm. talking about things that way. So let's get into this whole false memory thing a little bit more, because uh, research has shown, you have shown, actually, that you can implant false memories in people's uh, minds without too much trouble. So talk about how you how you do that, since most of us think of ourselves as having a pretty infallible memory. <laughs> yeah, I mean, overconfidence is so common. Uh, we think we're better than most people at most things. We think we're better looking than most people. We think we're better drivers than most people. And we think we have better memories than most people. So, I mean, it's it's sort of the human condition, if you will. What we've shown is that it's really easy to get people to confuse their imagination with what they think happened, with their memory. So we, we go in and intentionally distort people's memories or create memories from nothing. Well, not nothing, because you, you still need a brain. <laughs> and you need pieces of memories that we can get you to weave together in a way that never happened. But essentially what we do is over a number of interview sessions, usually three interview sessions, we get you to repeatedly picture something happening. And we, we come in with insider information. So we contact usually your parents or um, people you trust who have given us information allegedly about your childhood or teenage years and then we launch it back at you and say oh do you remember this this event happening and the first event that we talk about usually is true and so you'll go on for 20 minutes and tell me about an event that actually did happen when you were let's say 14 and then I go on to number two and say well what about this other event where you committed a crime and the police called your parents you were 14 it happened in your hometown and you were with your best friend and I weave in some real details then I say well what about this one and then you go, I don't know what you're talking about. And I say, okay, well, let's 
why don't we use, do a memory retrieval exercise to get that memory back? And so research like this shows that if you get people to then engage in sort of imagination exercise where they close their eyes and they picture the event as it could have been, over a number of sort of repeats and given a little bit of time to sink in, people come to think that what they're imagining, what they're accessing isn't their imagination, it's actually their memory, especially if someone like me is going, mm, good, it looks like it's coming back. Um, and so by the end of it, um, in research, we generally find that between 15 and 70% of people seem to remember emotional things that never happened. Do you think the criminal justice system is aware of how malleable memories are? Because still, one of the most important things in any trial is the people who like saw the crime happen and who are there and can testify to this is how the person looked and this is what they did and this is where you know what they were driving and and whatever else yes and no so i think that if you talk to judges and lawyers and and even jurors i mean they'll see in especially in a case with multiple witnesses you'll see the same story told in sometimes dramatically different ways within the same trial. So I think that there is an appreciation that obviously people notice different things and also that they might misremember things slightly. But I think there's an underappreciation of how severe these these mistakes can be. And so I think that we are often, as humans, still fooled by, I mean, this is true for the criminal justice system and for pretty much everybody else, we're fooled by things like someone's confidence and the complexity of a memory and the emotionality. And so someone's pointing at someone in a courtroom saying, that's the guy who did it. Mm -hmm. That's that's powerful. And it's even if you know about memory, it's hard to sort of in that moment go, oh, yeah, but that could be wrong. <laughs> um, that and it's it's hard also to balance making sure we listen to victims and making sure we have safe spaces for people to come forward and say, you know, I remember this thing happening. And maybe it's even historical. I remember this thing happening 20 years ago, but I never came out and reported it or whatever. And feeling like they, they will be listened to. So it, it's a tricky situation for the justice system to, on the one hand, fully acknowledge and integrate an understanding of false memories. And on the other hand, to make sure that we don't just throw out cases because all we have is memories. Because in I mean, especially in sexual abuse cases, often all you have are memories. You don't have witnesses. You don't have other evidence very often. And that's really difficult. And, you know, now that the criminal justice system may now know that we are so prone to make mistakes, um, misremember things, falsely remember things, what do you think that lawyers and judges and police people, what should they do? How should they approach things differently than they do now? For the criminal justice system, the biggest thing we can do is to record, record, record. You want independent evidence as to not just the crime itself, but as to the memory as well. So we shouldn't just be videotaping or audiotaping confessions or final witness statements. From the first contact the police have with anyone involved in a potential investigation, if possible, you want to be recording from that moment on. And that's mostly a safeguard as well for the police. I mean, if you're really good at policing, which a lot of police are, what you can do is you can prove, look, we did everything that we should have done Mm -hmm. and we asked the right questions and this is what we got. And so I think that, and this is something I often tell the, the police or the military when I work with them is, you know, it's safe safeguards for you. 
This isn't just because it's problematic for the individual on trial, but you don't want your case to get thrown out if you've been working on it for months and months and months or years. Um, And then, you know, a judge says, oh, well, this is inadmissible. (laughs) So recording things is really important. Making sure you understand the basics of memory, because I think right now it's not taught as standard to lawyers or judges or to cops or Mm -hmm. to other people involved in in the justice process. So we need to get out there a little bit more about not just what to do, but why to do the things you do and how to ask the right questions. Outside of the criminal justice system, do you see kind of a wild new world ahead when it comes to uh, the research around memory? I know, for example, people have talked about being able to treat PTSD by maybe expunging the memories that give you nightmares and the memories that sort of inhibit your ability to live your life in a normal way because you know, they're very traumatic. Yeah, so the the taking away rather than putting in memories, right? Or distorting, changing memories rather than adding totally new ones. Um, Yeah, there's certainly therapeutic applications. I mean, there's there's people in Amsterdam right now who are using essentially heart pressure medication, I believe it is. Um, Not even drugs, drugs, just just medicine (laughs) to increase the malleability, increase the flexibility of memories associated with phobia. So they're having people, you know, play with tarantulas and... What they're doing is they're allowing people to build new memories that are positive experiences with things that they fear that they can later access. So, and on the other hand, we've got people who are, as I said, sort of hacking right into brains and maybe cutting out the emotional part. And this is really important, is that it's not... Yeah, I don't think the future of false memory science in terms of treating trauma is to delete entire events. I think that's incredibly difficult because events are really big in the brain, especially Mm. complex multisensory events. Mm. You can change them, sure. But the biggest thing you want to do to get rid of a trauma, for example, is to get rid of the emotional component. So you want to cut out the fear. You want to cut out the, you know, the sadness. You want to cut out that piece. And that's something that we're already doing in mice. And I've talked to a neuroscientist in France who says that we're starting to do this in humans as well. Hmm. So in extreme cases, you might be able to, it looks like you are able to, um, go right into the brain and get rid of the piece that's really bad in a memory. And that can actually dramatically increase your quality of life. Take a step back from all this. Um, How do you think this should affect... All of us, now that we all sort of know the issues that memory can have, let's say, how should this affect all of us? I think that we should be cautious, curious, and kind. So you should be cautious as to sort of confidence. So when you're totally sure something happened, still be cautious and go, okay, well, but maybe this didn't happen exactly the way I remember it. And you need to be curious. So think about not just your own memories, but other people's memories. Like, where did this come from? Was there maybe a weird interview process? Did someone suggest to me that this happened and then I started imagining it? Did I guess? Um, So be curious as to the origins of your memories and be kind to others. So just because someone says something that's demonstrably untrue, don't assume that they're lying because they might just be misremembering. So I think that really appreciating the flexibility of memory is also good for, well, our social interactions in our lives, but it's even good for sort of taking charge. So in a way, when you realize that your past is essentially a piece of fiction anyways, it really gives you a different perspective on focusing on the future and focusing on the now and going, okay, well, maybe some of that stuff didn't happen the way I remember, but that's okay because I can control what's happening right now and what's happening next. So it it sort of highlights the role of now, and I think that's quite a beautiful thing. 
Julia Shaw is author of The Memory Illusion. She's also a senior lecturer and researcher in the Department of Law and Social Sciences at London South Bank University. Julia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And one more thing about the fallibility of our memories. We even have trouble remembering the face that we see in the mirror every day. At least we've got trouble remembering it accurately. If you take a picture of someone and then you Photoshop it in 5% increments to be more attractive or less attractive, um, people, and then give it back to people in random order, people will generally pick a picture of themselves that's Photoshopped to be 15% more attractive than they actually are. (laughs) Um, So they don't even recognize their own face. Um, Whereas friends and family generally pick the right photo. So what's probably happening here is that you've hacked your own face memory by always selecting and putting on Facebook and other things the best pictures of you. And you've come to essentially believe your own lie and go, oh, wow, I'm really good looking. (laughs) I'm about 15% more attractive. If you want to tell us about memories that you've gotten wrong or memories that your friends and family just can't agree on, you can email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. Or you can join the conversation about this on Facebook, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Radio.